Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Welcome to the Federalist Society's webinar call. Today, May 2nd, we discuss environmental justice, property rights, and zoning. My name is Guy DeSanctis, and I'm Assistant Director of Practice Groups at the Federalist Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the experts on today's call. Today, we are fortunate to have with us our moderator, Adam Griffin, Law Clerk, U.S. District Courts. Throughout the panel, if you have any questions, please submit them through the question and answer features so that our speakers will have access to them before we get to that portion of the webinar. With that, thank you for being with us today. Adam, the floor is yours. Thank you, Guy, and thank you to our speakers, to the Federalist Society, and to everyone on our call. Um, today, we're here to discuss uh, a hot topic in law and public policy, um, environmental justice, and zoning. The United States Environmental Protection Agency defines zoning, defines environmental justice as the fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people, regardless of race, color, national origin, or income with respect to the development, implementation, and enforcement of environmental laws, regulations, and policies. Another area of law and public policy receiving significant attention today is zoning. An area of law that's familiar to most people, uh, the Black's Law Dictionary defines zoning as the legislative process of dividing land into zones for different uses, such as industrial, open space, and residential. This panel will focus on the intersection of environmental justice and zoning. Our esteemed panelists will explore the pros and cons of zoning, its relation to environmental justice, its detrimental or beneficial impacts on minorities, and its consistency or inconsistency with property rights. Importantly, the discussion will engage with the scope of modern zoning and what, if anything, should be done to alter, increase, or decrease the government's zoning power. Criticisms of zoning are on the rise from both the right and left. Critics focus on the ignoble racial history of zoning and its detrimental impacts on the housing markets, property values, and minority communities. Defenders instead look to the community stability provided by zoning and the need for separation of industrial from residential property uses as well as other benefits. This panel will present varying views from across the political spectrum, featuring both criticisms and defenses of zoning from the right and left. Speaking first is Mr. Richard Rothstein. Mr. Richard Rothstein is a distinguished fellow of the Economic Policy Institute at the Economic Policy Institute and a senior fellow emeritus at the Thorogood Marshall Institute of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. He is the author of The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America, which recovers a forgotten history of how federal, state, and local policy explicitly segregated metropolitan areas nationwide creating a racially homogeneous creating racially homogeneous neighborhoods in patterns that violate the constitution and require remediation he is also the author of many other articles and books on race and education and he is currently finishing up a manuscript for a new book focused on what citizens can do in their local communities to remedy segregation our second speaker is uh, christopher Serkin. He is the Elizabeth H. and Granville S. Ridley Jr. Chair in Law and Professor of Management at the Owen Graduate School of Management. He teaches and writes about land use and property law. His provocative scholarship addresses local governments, property theory, the takings clause, land use regulations, and eminent domain. His articles have appeared in the Chicago, Columbia, Michigan, 
New York University, Notre Dame, and Northwestern University Law Reviews, among others. After graduating from the University of Michigan School of Law, Professor Sirkin was a law clerk for Judge John M. Walker Jr. of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit and for Judge J. Garvin Murtha of the U.S. District Court for the District of Vermont. Importantly for our current discussion, he is the author of a recent article entitled A Case for Zoning, published in the Notre Dame Law Review in 2020. Nicole Stell Garnett, Professor Garnett, is the John P. Murphy Foundation Professor of Law at Notre Dame Law School. Her teaching and research focuses on education policy and topics related to property law. In addition to dozens of articles, Professor Garnett is also the author of two books, including Ordering the City, Land Use, Policing, and the Restoration of Urban America, published by the Yale University Press in 2009. After graduating from Yale Law School, she clerked for the Honorable Morris S. Arnold of the United States Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit and for Associate Justice Clarence Thomas of the Supreme Court of the United States. Randall O'Toole, our final speaker, is a blogger on the Anti-Planner. The Anti-Planner is a blog dedicated to ending government land use regulation, comprehensive planning, and transportation boondoggles. Formerly, Mr. O'Toole was a Cato Institute senior fellow working on urban growth, public land, and transportation issues, where he published numerous articles and books, including American Nightmare, How Government Undermines the Dream of Home Ownership. Thank you to all of our esteemed speakers for being here today. Mr. Rothstein, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Adam. Thanks to all of you for joining with me in this conversation this morning. I wrote a book, as, as you know, called The Color of Law, which documents many, many federal, state, and local policies that with racial explicit, racially explicit intent created a segregated landscape in every metropolitan area of this country. I'm, for the purposes of this discussion, I'm only going to focus on one of them. And that is in the aftermath of World War II, the Federal Housing Administration and Veterans Administrations engaged on a racially explicit policy to suburbanize the white working class population uh, and prevent African-Americans from joining that suburban exodus. At the time, in the immediate post-World War II period, we were not a suburban country, both black and white, middle-class, working-class families, mostly live in urban areas. The Federal Housing Administration and then Veterans Administration designed to move the whites out of those urban areas into single family homes in suburban communities. And that's the primary cause, not the only cause, but it's the primary cause of the suburbanization that we have today, which still consists mostly of white suburbs uh, creating a noose around uh, African-American neighborhoods in urban areas. The developers of these suburbs could never uh, develop them on their own. No bank would be crazy enough to lend them the funds to engage in these large developments uh, at a time when we weren't uh, suburban and banks thought nobody was going to live in these places. In my book, the place I focus on most is Levittown as an example, 17,000 homes in one place. Uh, no bank would be crazy enough to lend Levitt the money to do that. Uh, the only way Levitt could build Levittown east of New York City was to go to the Federal Housing Administration and Veterans Administration, request a, a guarantee of his bank loans uh, to create the development. And along with submitting all the detailed plans for his development, he also was required by the FHA and VA to uh, make a pledge never to sell a home to an African-American. The FHA even required uh, 
Levitt to place a clause in the deed of every home prohibiting resale to African-Americans or rental to African-Americans. This was not the action of rogue bureaucrats at these agencies. It was written in the federal policy manual, uh, the underwriting manual issued by the FHA, which said that appraisers could not recommend for federal bank guarantees uh, loans that would uh, be integrated, to, for developments would be integrated. The manual went so far as to say that you couldn't even recommend a federal bank guarantee for a loan for an all-white project that was going to be located near where African-Americans were living. Because in the words of the federal underwriting manual, that would run the risk of infiltration by inharmonious racial groups. Well, with this kind of policy blatantly unconstitutional, uh, in violation of the Fifth Amendment in particular, as well as in violation of civil rights laws going back to the post-Civil War period, which the Supreme Court had prohibited enforcement of, but then in 1968 recognized that it had been wrong to do so, blatantly unconstitutional and unlawful actions on the part of the federal government. With the, this policy, we created uh, white suburbs that uh, were inexpensive at the time, affordable both to African-Americans and to whites, uh, many uh, African-Americans could have afforded to live in these places. They had jobs in the post-war boom. Returning war veterans required uh, no down payment uh, under VA policies for purchasing these homes. In today's inflation-adjusted dollars, they cost about $100,000. Any uh, working family uh, with a regular job could have afforded a home at that. It was about twice national median income. You can afford to, uh, with a 20-year mortgage, a home, especially with no down payment required for twice national median income. Well, today those homes no longer sell for $100,000. They sell for $300,000, $500,000. It's impossible for working class families, uh, even middle class families, to afford homes um, at that price unless they have down payment assistance from their parents. And of course, their parents and grandparents who, who owned those homes gained wealth from the appreciation and the value of those homes. They used it to send their children to college. They used it to uh, finance uh, perhaps temporary emergencies, temporary unemployment or medical emergencies. Uh, they used it to subsidize their retirements and they used it to bequeath wealth to their children and grandchildren who could then perpetuate uh, the uh, all white nature of these uh, suburbs. Well, the suburbs then typically adopted zoning ordinances that uh, required uh, nothing but, uh, permitted nothing but single family homes, sometimes even on large lot sizes. These zoning ordinances effectively perpetuate an unconstitutionally created segregation. And uh, I'm not a lawyer, all of you are, but uh, in my view, a, a policy, a local regulation that perpetuates an unconstitutionally uh, created segregation is itself uh, unconstitutional. Now, Across the political spectrum, leaders of both Republican and Democratic parties um, opposed this. Uh, when Ben Carson took office as Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, he announced immediately that he was going to uh, punish any suburb that maintained single-family zoning-only uh, uh, zoning. Uh, he said he was going to withhold uh, community development block grants from those uh, suburbs. Um, this was uh, immediately after he took office, and we never heard from that vow again. The Democrats uh, as well uh, frequently vow to prohibit single-family zoning, but it's never something that becomes a priority in their um, policies. The reason is, of course, that both the Democratic and the Republican parties 
have bases in suburbs, political bases in suburbs. We call them NIMBYs, not in my backyard, that are determined to preserve the segregation of their communities at any cost. Uh, it, to conclude, uh, I, I simply say, and, and um, I've said it, uh, I guess, a minute ago, that these uh, single-family-only zoning ordinances, I'm not talking about separating residential from industrial or, or large commercial development. Uh, I have no opinion about those. Actually, my opinion is that I think they're perfectly legitimate. But uh, to divide single-family, uh, to divide residential neighborhoods uh, by type uh, of uh, housing, which effectively excludes people who have been unconstitutionally excluded and unlawfully excluded from those communities in the past are subject both to legal uh, challenge and to constitutional challenge, and they should be abolished. Thank you, uh, Mr. Rothstein, um, for your excellent remarks. Uh, Professor Sirkin, the floor is yours. Perfect, thank you. And I'm gonna share my screen uh, uh, and hope this works. And let me know if you see my zoning and density uh, screen. Great. Th thank you very much for having me. I'm a great admirer of uh, Mr. Rothstein's book, The Color of Law. It's a terrific book if you haven't read it. I'm also a, an enormous fan of Nicole Garnett's work uh, over the years. She's done really important work in this area. So it's a real pleasure to be here um, on this panel. So I've been writing about exclusionary zoning in cities for some time. Uh, starting in 2013, I argued that exclusionary zoning was no longer the exclusive domain of suburbs with large lot zones. And I looked at the forms of urban exclusionary zoning, where I think the dynamics are importantly different. But maybe because I'm a contrarian, or maybe because I think the role of scholarship should be to highlight issues that are being overlooked in current policy debates, I've been thinking increasingly about the limits and some of the costs of current zoning reform efforts. But I'd like to start by stating my priors up front, because I would prefer not to be accused of being some kind of crypto nimby, although I already have been and I'm sure I will be again. Um, but I'm very much in favor of density and growth. I'm convinced by the critique that NIMBY neighbors have grown too strong politically in many places. I'm convinced by the critique that zoning has perpetuated racial segregation in many places. But I also want to make sure that we are thinking clearly about the effects of zoning reform, because reform efforts are going to impose costs that we shouldn't ignore, even if we choose to pay them. Um, and the effects are not going to be the same in all places. So the zoning reform movement makes a number of related claims. One, soaring housing prices are partly, if not largely, the result of limited supply. Um, supply is limited primarily by zoning. And zoning, by limiting density, produces sprawling suburbs that are bad for the environment, that reduce social capital and produce other harmful effects. Restrictive zoning is also a tool for racial and economic exclusion, either intentionally or unintentionally. And I think these are all incredibly damning claims with a lot of truth in a lot of places. The overarching prescription then in zoning reform efforts is to loosen or deregulate land use in order to promote growth and density. California has been at the forefront, but the same dynamics are playing out in lots of other parts of the country. 
But let me tell you a little bit about Nashville, where I live, because I'm on the faculty at Vanderbilt. So Nashville, Tennessee uh, has honky tonks for uh, no obvious reason. We have a life-size reproduction of the Parthenon uh, and we have tremendous development. There's very, very light zoning in Nashville. Nashville is very permissive zoning ordinance. The city approves basically every rezoning that a developer proposes. I hardly exaggerating. Um, and there has been enormous development in this city. In a city of less than 2 million people, 100,000 new housing units built since 2014. And there's been tremendous urban development downtown. What we've seen is uh, one neighborhood called the Gulch has dense urban high rise living. It's a brand new neighborhood. There are 6,000 units currently under construction just in a couple of blocks. This is the form of development that I think zoning deregulation promises and that zoning reformers uh, are, are after. But here's the thing, as fast as the urban core is growing in Nashville, its suburbs are growing even faster and almost exclusively through single family housing development. And as a result, despite all of this urban downtown growth, Nashville has become on balance less dense overall in the last decade because suburban growth has so outpaced urban growth. You can see here where the growth has happened in Nashville, and it's in those southern suburbs that growth has been most intense. And so Nashville, with its very permissive, loose approach to zoning, is neither dense nor, for what it's worth, is it particularly affordable. So this has made me wonder whether there's a relationship between zoning intensity and density. So I looked at the Wharton Land Regulation Index. This is not a great measure of zoning intensity, but it's basically the only one we have that covers the entire country. And other researchers have certainly used it. Um, and with the help of a PhD student here at Vanderbilt and Kelsey Best, I plotted the restrictiveness of zoning intensity under the Wharton against density from the Census Bureau by a metropolitan statistical area. And what you see is in fact, very, very little correlation. And what correlation there is goes in the opposite direction than promoted by zoning reformers. That is more restrictive zoning actually correlates with greater density. This is true once we remove outliers like New York City, it's true by region, although I don't have those charts here. It's also true for different city sizes, from large to medium to small. Now, I want to be clear, I'm not making a causal claim here. The causation is likely to run in the opposite direction. Maybe as places become more dense, they adopt more zoning. Or maybe there's a hidden variable like the politics of denser places that's actually driving uh, the relationships that we see. These charts absolutely do not demonstrate that more restrictive zoning regulations will lead to greater density or that looser zoning restrictions will lead to less density. However, 
if reformers claims is that loosening zoning will necessarily produce more density, these charts at least pose a question that I think we need to try and answer. And generally, I think there are three things going on in that highlight. One, where zoning doesn't satisfy consumers' regulatory preferences, especially for stability, housing consumers may opt for what I call private zoning in the form of homeowners associations, which I think are actually worse on most dimensions that reformers care about, whether it's segregation, supply restrictions, or whatever. Most suburban development in Nashville is in largely unzoned or very lightly zoned parts of Williamson County, but all of it, almost all of it, is happening in very restrictive homeowners associations. This is true in other cities as well. So two, even where there is pretty lax zoning restriction, like zoning regulation like in Nashville, in a really growing place like we are, Developers, I, I think, actually can't keep up with demand, and it's faster and cheaper to build out in the suburbs, and that's where growth is happening. And third, I think consumer preferences are really sticky, and unlocking density is not necessarily going to actually produce density in all housing markets. So there are plenty of places where upzoning will increase density, like a lot of New York City and a lot of California. But there are other places like Nashville, like Phoenix, where the principal impediment to density simply is not restrictive zoning. And so I think we need to be thinking clearly about what it is that we're actually trying to achieve here. What are our goals? Is it just growth? Is it density? Is it racial integration? I think the anti-zoning consensus, which I have labeled a, a libertarian consensus because it in fact combines libertarians with liberals, um, actually hides a lot of disagreement about ultimate goals. So with this in mind, how should we think about the role of today? So in the recent article of mine, um, uh, a case for zoning, uh, which I should say is not a full-throated defense of zoning. It is simply trying to articulate what it is that zoning does today. I argued that traditional justifications from Euclid versus Ambler Realty are, are just increasingly anachronistic. In a time when planners and consumers want mixed-use, walkable development, the justification for zoning as primarily concerned with separating uses into single-use zones just seems out of date. But as we engage in zoning reform, I think we need to ask ourselves how governments are actually using zoning today, not just for separating incompatible uses of land. So one, I think zoning is used to allocate the costs of growth between insiders and outsiders. Zoning opponents will conjure Im images of cloistered exclusionary communities using zoning and impact fees to raise the prices of new housing and exclude outsiders. But another vision will look at smaller cities, some suburbs as overwhelmed by uncontrolled development and growth, causing overcrowding in schools, congestion on roads, and burdens on insufficient infrastructure. 
We have selfish NIMBYs on the one hand and rapacious and irresponsible developers. Both can absolutely be true. Indeed, sometimes they're true at the same time. The point is, though, that there's nothing internal to zoning that provides a right, the right answer to what is ultimately a normative question about who should bear the costs of growth between insiders and outsiders. And zoning is a tool for allocating those costs. Two, I think zoning constrains the pace of community change. I have my own argument that this can be important because quick changes are more disruptive than slow ones. I think it's also worth pointing out that the Thibault hypothesis, which is one of the sort of one of the mainstream accounts of, of local politics and local political dynamics suggests that people vote with their feet for communities that satisfy their preferences. I merely point out that if communities change rapidly, people are either left in places that don't satisfy their preferences or first forced to incur the costs of moving. So if zoning doesn't provide the stability that housing consumers, in fact, look for, I think the choice is often not between more zoning and less zoning, but is instead between public and private zoning in the form of HOAs. And finally, I want to argue that zoning, in fact, played a crucial role in the reurbanization that we've, in fact, seen in the last 20 years. Zoning and land use regulations by cities empowered sublocal communities in ways that allowed cities to compete more effectively with their suburbs. And I think we need to understand those dynamics to make sure that our reforms don't put cities at a competitive disadvantage as we move into still a new era of urban and suburban growth. So one critic responded to this last point that I couldn't be right because Houston and Phoenix have also grown during this period despite lax zoning. But I think this just shows the problems in current zoning debate. If reform is aimed at promoting density and not just growth, as uh, so, so as this person, in fact, claimed, this critic claimed, then pointing to Houston and Phoenix as paragons of urban development in the absence of zoning it is a very strange move. They're among the least dense places in, in America. So I think we need to do a better job of understanding when loosening regulatory restrictions will, in fact, generate density and not just growth and when it will simply drive development in homeowners associations and produce greater sprawl and more exclusion. And more generally, I think we need to be thoughtful and candid about the goals that we're trying to achieve. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Sirkin. Uh, Professor Garnett? Great. Um, thank you so much for having me. And um, this is an amazing panel to be a part of. So uh, I'm really, this is, I'm privileged to be a part of the conversation. Um, I'd like to make sort of three points in response to what's already been said. Um, and they're overlapping kind of off the top of my head remarks uh, based on, you know, reactions here. Um, so the, the first is something that um, I think that Chris, Professor Sirkin just emphasized, and that's, I think when we talk about land use regulation in the United States, um, we need to think about what it is that the goals are um, of land use regulation. So um, one is something that Professor Sirkin has emphasized in his work, which is stability um, of stability of community. Others have emphasized this as well, both on the left and the right. So um, 
So I think that that is an important one possible important goal of, of stability. I think uh, of land use regulation, um, zoning, and other land use regulations do probably they do probably support the goal of stability. But if we want if that's our goal, we still have to recognize that the stability goal um, tends to benefit those who get there first. And so therefore, the people who are lucky enough to purchase a house in a neighborhood um, that may be protected by zoning laws from incursions of things that would drive housing prices down or increase increase um, density, like, for example, me, who bought a house 23 years ago across the street from the University of Notre Dame in a, in a 1919 house, it's I mean, it's more than quadrupled in value. It's just sort of nice, except for my property taxes. Um, and uh, but I, I won. I got here first. I bought in cheap. And it's harder for people who, like me, would have been young professors with young at the time. I didn't even have any kids um, to purchase houses in my neighborhood. The people who can buy houses in my neighborhood now um, are rich people from around the country who can afford to buy an expensive house a couple blocks from Notre Dame so they can go to football games a few um, days a year or visit their children who happen to be here. Um, okay, so that's one stability, but stability benefits fits those who got there first. And those aren't necessarily the richest people, but they, they often are people who benefit. They are wealthy. The second, um, and this I think relates to what Professor Rothstein said, is that we should recognize, for example, that um, as, as minorities gain um, income and become more mobile, they're likely not to be the people who got there first. Uh, the second is perhaps we want um, density. I like density. I like mixed mixing of uses. Um, and I, I think that would be kind of a nice goal. Um, and um, density is though, is, is intent is not necessarily, it's often promoted as a way of advancing another goal, which is housing affordability, but that's not necessarily the case. Many dense places in the United States are extremely unaffordable. I suspect Nashville being one of them. Um, so, uh, and then, you know, the final thing might be, do we want land use regulations that match with people's preferences? Uh, I noticed Bill Official uh, has a comment in the chat about suburbanization starting in 18, around 1890. Um, when I teach about land use regulation in the United States, I often um, teach my property class. I show the um, schoolhouse rock episode elbow room. So it's like that everybody in the United States is we're like all smushed on the East Coast and we want to go. It's it's very NPC. It's all about manifest destiny. But it, it does capture this cultural thing that Americans actually like space. They like yards. They move to suburbs because they like them. They move to suburbs because suburbs give them amenities um, that, that, that other amenities like good schools, safe neighborhoods, lower taxes, big yards. Uh, my children always complain that we have such a small yard. I tell them that they they get lots of benefits by being so close to Notre Dame and they don't believe me until they get older. Um, so those are all different goals. What is the goal? And then if we're going to have different goals, we might we might have very different land use regulations. So that's my first point. The second point um, I want to make is to think about, um, we need to think about land use regulation, not just in terms of zoning, but there are in immense varieties of land use regulation. Many places who are seeking to, to to have mixing of uses, for example, kind of anti-zoning, still have crazy regulations of land uses. And, and those things can drive up housing prices dramatically. In an article that I wrote with my colleague Peg Brennan, we studied um, the regulation of accessory dwelling units in California. And what we found is that even when the state of California mandated 
that single family zones have accessory dwelling units. The cities would just regulate these things like a death by a thousand paper cuts. So they would become completely unaffordable. The only people that could live in accessory dwelling units would be, you know, rich grandparents and maids of rich people. So that's, and so there's all kinds of land use regulation and often density proponents are very pro-regulation. They, they favor, for example, inclusionary zoning, which, as Bob Ellickson has shown, is often just a benefit for a few lucky middle class people and does not afford doesn't doesn't actually help very many poor people. They favor architectural controls. Um, they favor you eliminate zoning, but then we move to something that's sort of like um, conditional use permits for everything, which can be quite expensive and require people to hire architects. And it's very so those things are going to drive up prices, too. So there's a lot of land use regulations. And I think you could look at the places with the most land use regulations. I think you'd see the least affordability. And I think one of the, the things that if you really want to, I think one of the best articles on land use regulation in recent years is um, the article by um, Peter uh, Ghanang and Daniel Showig, which asks the following question, why did regional income convergence in the United States stop? So rich people, rich places got poorer and poor places got richer over the course of much of the 20th century. And then all of a sudden it just stops. It's a great macroeconomic mystery. Why did this happen? Um, and um, the theory is that the reason that rich places got poor and poor places got richer is, is basically to say poor people would move to places that had better jobs and then that would bring the income down perhaps in California, but the income up and you know, when the Okies moved to California, Oklahoma is slightly wealthier and California is slightly poorer. And, and in their article, um, they study their hypothesis is the reason that this stops is that land use regulation is pricing poor people out of rich places. So California has a lot of land use regulation. Poor people can no longer afford to move to California. This actually affects um, the economy of the United States as a whole, regional mobility and not state interstate mobility and not just regional mobility, which we often think of as the main land use problem is people moving around within metropolitan regions. Um, and so the, the so that's my first two points is what are the goals of land use regulation? The second is think about more than just zoning, the varieties of land use regulation. And I would add, Chris, including covenants, obviously, and homeowners associations. Um, and then the final thing is, why do we see so we see reforms, but why do we see relative stickiness with land use regulation and zoning? Why don't we see more reform? And I think that is something that um, is particularly challenging to overcome in the United States. And the answer to that question is because most land use regulations, including zoning, um, are in the hands of local governments. And local governments, um, the median voter tends to be a homeowner who likes uh, land use regulation because it protects their property values. Um, local governments are trying to compete in the TiVo market for homeowners, <laughs> um, but they are trying to compete for the same people. Um, and, and so, um, Local governments are not really all that thrilled about um, reforming land use regulation because most of the people who are electing people to be on zoning boards and on the city councils really don't want land use reform. And until or in, in, until we have some change in who the regulator is, I think we will see relatively little reform, especially in the suburbs. And that's in part because the people in the suburbs actually kind of like what they have. I don't particularly like the suburban model that zoning creates, but lots of people do. Um, and uh, my final point about, you know, local governments being the regulator is that it is almost impossible to reform that. 
um, because local governments have a lot of power. They do two things. They run, they run schools and they run and they they do land use regulation. Those are their two much most important functions. And they are very, very, very jealous of those two functions and unlikely to give them up. So thanks for having me. Those are my sort of thoughts and reflections. Thank you so much, Professor Garnett. Mr. O'Toole. Thank you. You know, in recent years, we've been inundated with claims that single family zoning has made housing expensive and abolishing single family zoning will make it affordable again. In response to these claims, Minneapolis, Oregon and California have all abolished single family zoning. And yet the claims are completely wrong. Focusing on single family zoning not only won't solve the housing problem, it obscures the real culprit behind expensive housing. Single-family zoning does not make housing expensive. Supposedly, it creates a cartel, but Kuwait alone can't make oil expensive as long as Saudi Arabia pumps out as much oil as it can. And in the same way, single-family zoning can't make housing expensive as long as builders can build new homes. Every state and every urban area in America, even in Rhode Island and Hawaii, has plenty of land for more housing. As late as 1970, Housing was affordable everywhere in the country, including California, even though every major city in the country except Houston had had single family zoning for one to five decades before that. Abolishing single family zoning won't make housing more affordable. It may make it less affordable. First of all, the kind of multi-story multifamily housing that planners want to see built density costs more to build per square foot than single family homes. They're only more affordable because the units are smaller. So we're talking about substituting 1,100 square foot apartments or condos for 2,300 square foot houses and saying, oh, look, they're going to be more affordable. More important, Americans don't want to live in multifamily housing. They want to live in single family homes, a preference that has been strengthened by the pandemic. Numerous surveys show that 75 to 85% of Americans prefer or aspire to live in single family homes. And in some states, more than 75% do. There are really two housing markets, one for single family and one for multifamily. The vast majority of Americans have shown by their behavior and in polls that they regard multifamily housing as temporary housing to be lived in by people who plan to stay in an area only for a short time or while they are trying to save enough money to buy a single family home. Apartments are no more of a substitute for single family homes than compact cars or a substitute for pickup trucks. Flooding the market with one will not make the other more affordable, especially if the compact cars or single or apartments are cost more than the pickups or single family homes. Americans want also want to live in low density neighborhoods, not just single family homes, but neighborhoods of single family homes. A 2018 Gallup poll found that 40% of people who live in big dense cities wanted to live in somewhere else. While most people, more people wanted to live in low density suburbs and rural areas and actually live there. A more recent survey found that most Americans believe that low density neighborhoods have less crime, less traffic congestion, and are better for the environment. I happen to agree with them. But even if you don't, the point is that's what Americans prefer. The pandemic has allowed more people to telecommute, which means they can live anywhere they want. And those people are moving to suburbs and exurbs, not to dense cities. 
abolishing single-family zoning and allowing developers to replace single-family homes with apartments will create a surplus of housing in neighborhoods that people don't want while increasing a shortage of housing in neighborhoods that people prefer. Density doesn't make housing more affordable. The densest urban areas in the country are in California, and not only are they, they the least affordable, as their densities increased over the past few decades, their housing affordability declined. Nationwide census data reveal a clear negative correlation between density and affordability. The fetish for density is completely out of touch with what most Americans want. The real reason why housing is expensive in many areas is growth management policies such as urban growth boundaries that were implemented in the 1970s through the 1990s in an effort to stop urban sprawl. A Russian once said that Americans don't have real problems and so they have to make them up. And urban sprawl is one of those made up problems. All of the urban areas in the country occupy well under 5% of the nation's land. <clears throat> we have three times as much agricultural land as we actually use for growing crops. Our forests are growing wood far faster than we consume it. So anti-sprawl rules created artificial housing shortages in order to protect things that we have in abundance. Density advocates also claim that people living in dense housing drive less, and so they use less energy. Department of Energy data show that multifamily dwellings use more energy per square foot than single family. They do show that people living in dense cities drive a little less than people living in low density suburbs, but the data also show that people living in dense cities drive in more congested conditions, which ends up using more fuel and emitting more greenhouse gases per capita than people in the suburbs. Due to the false fears that we are running out of land, between 1961 and 1992, Hawaii, California, Oregon, Washington, Maryland, Florida, New Jersey, and several New England states passed growth management laws, while Denver and a few other cities in Colorado and Montana adopted growth management plans. These are the places where housing is expensive. While fast-growing urban areas like Atlanta, Dallas, Charlotte, and Indianapolis remain affordable because they don't try to restrict suburban development. Cities responded to the high housing prices by adopting policies that looked good at first glance, but actually made housing even more expensive. Inclusionary zoning leads builders to construct fewer homes and charge more for the homes they do build. That makes housing more expensive for everyone, except for the lucky few who get a below cost home. Other cities tax new homes, making them more expensive to provide funding for affordable housing. Others pass rent control ordinances, even though almost every economist in the world that rent control reduces the long run supply of housing. The movement to abolish single family zoning is only the latest of wrongheaded solutions that make housing even less affordable. The most recent housing price increases are due to supply chain difficulties. It's worth noting that the COVID relief bills passed by Congress uh, in 2020 and 2021 spent $70 billion on urban transit systems that almost no one was riding, but didn't spend a single cent on rele relieving supply chain problems. In the face of such problems, abolishing single family zoning and encouraging builders to build multifamily housing will only worsen material and labor shortages for the construction of the single family homes that people that Americans want. Labor and supply chain problems will eventually work themselves out, but the growth management laws remain on the books. 
No one can sincerely claim to care about housing affordability without demanding that those growth management laws and plans be repealed. Those who support abolishing single family zoning so we can build more apartments are betraying both existing homeowners and prospective home buyers. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mr. Atul. So we're going to um, now turn to everyone's response time. Everyone has five minutes for response. Professor Rothstein, we'll start with you and we'll go in the same order, but uh, Professor Sirkin and uh, Mr. Atul and Professor Garnett, if you don't mind, after Rothstein goes, um, can, maybe we can move Professor Garnett to second because I know she has to jump off at 1230 so that she could have some time for response. Okay, well, thank you. Uh, I, I will uh, first reject the promotion to professor. <laughs> I apologize. I can't do that. Just kidding. Just kidding. Let me say first of all that that zoning is not the uh, sole problem we have. I certainly agree that supply is a big problem, and uh, the the inaccessibility of housing to many people is in large part due to a shortage of supply. And there are many causes of that. Uh, one is that housing is um, housing costs. The construction costs of housing have become unaffordable to working in middle-class families for a whole variety of reasons that quite aside from the, the growth in land costs. And so far as Professor Serkin's um, uh, comment, I wasn't clear if, if um, his uh, comments were, were um, directed at uh, single-use zoning or all zoning. I My comments uh, had nothing to do with zoning that uh, restricts uh, uh, the combination of uh, industrial and, and residential zoning, for example, and residential uses, for example. What I was referring to is residential zoning, which I think is appropriate, uh, perhaps with some mixed use permissions for uh, small retail, but uh, residential zoning that excludes certain types of residential zoning. And again, it's a, um, it's a, I wasn't referring to among the comments of, of the succeeding um, commentators, uh, suggested the alternative is large apartments uh, versus uh, single family homes. If uh, single family zoning doesn't just exclude, and, and in most cases doesn't really uh, prevent, uh, it's not apartments that are the issue, it's townhouses, it's garden apartments, it's um, more accessible, some cases single family homes, uh, but they're not on large lot sizes. I don't know if you consider a, a, an attached a garden apartment a single family home, but um, it's home ownership that is not single family on large lot sizes. And that's today we have a housing crisis uh, that is not just a crisis for low income families, working in moderate income families who are disproportionately African American uh, can't afford housing. Uh, can't afford home purchases. We we uh, we know that the white home ownership rate is about seventy percent. The black home ownership rate is about forty percent. Uh, we can't uh, narrow that inequality simply by building single-family homes on large lot sizes. Uh, and in many communities, and I was referring before, and I I, I will repeat again: suburban communities uh, preventing garden apartments, the missing middle, garden apartments, townhouses. Uh, as well as small uh, apartment uh, developments, uh, is what's keeping those neighborhoods all white, keeping them exclusive. Uh, community stability is, is fine as long as stability isn't uh, defined as racial homogeneity. And uh, creating a residential community that has mixed types of housing uh, is not a threat to, uh, 
the kind of community stability we want. Indeed, in this country, we need to uh, uh, invent a different kind of community stability that is not uh, based on racial exclusivity. Uh, I don't know if, um, if I've used up five minutes or not, but that's uh, I'll stop there for now. Very close, but thank you. Those are great remarks. Um, Professor Garnett. Yeah, thanks. Um, just a couple, I just want to make a couple of quick follow-up um, points. In so the first would be um, just to respond to Mr. O'Toole's point about single-family um, zoning. I, I do think that um, it's, it's, it is important when we talk about land use regulation in the United States to recognize the, that we need to be we need to um, understand what people want. Now, I actually am not a big fan of zoning. I don't like it. Um, I think it's sort of a, a, it's a progressive um, era um, form of regulation that sort of is the scientific management of the economy, which I think has been proven wrong over and over again in many other areas. And the only reason we have the persistence of zoning goes back to my previous point. It's because it's in the hands of local governments. But and so I would design a different um, method of regulation from scratch. But we have the one that we have. But that still said, I do think zoning often reflects the preferences of Americans, including Americans of all races and all classes, which is that like it or not, their preferences, the preferences of average Americans do not necessarily match the preferences of elites. Average Americans, most people like single family homes with yards in the suburbs. Um, and so therefore, the real, real crisis for land use regulation, if we care about affordability and integration, it is not density, but it is the exclusionary use of land use regulations by, by suburbs. Um, and so I think that we just need to keep that in mind. Um, I do think to your point, um, townhouses are a great example. I mean, even then. So let's take the second, my second point would be, let's take um, exclusionary zoning at, at, or all kinds of buckets of regulation result in exclusion. Townhouses and garden apartments are systematically often excluded from suburbs. I think that's changing. If you drive around many cities, you'll see there are a lot more of them now. Um, and people, many people would prefer to live in a townhouse in the suburbs than they would in, in a, an apartment, a high rise apartment in the city, particularly if they have children. They probably would still prefer to live in a house with a yard, but they would prefer to live in a townhouse. And so that regulation that allows those kinds of um, mixing of uses and a multifamily housing, particularly housing like townhouses where the, the, the units are separated by walls and not floors. Someone pointed out walls are better at absorbing noise than floors. So you probably if you have a family, you would prefer to live in a townhouse than in a, an apartment. Um, and, and one of the and the final point I will make is that we um, will not fix this problem in the United States until we recognize how closely paired our land use problems, our land use affordability uh, debates are um, related to our education problems because people want to move to the suburbs for good public schools. Um, and uh, most people with children choose to do so. That's the way we choose schools in the United States. I'm a, education is my other hat, but the, the, the connection between education policy and land use policy in the United States is really a critical thing that we need to attend to. Thanks. Can I ask a quick question since you have to jump, or unless you have to jump off right now? Um, what would be the educational solution? Like, what is the like elevator pitch education solution that would help our alleviate some of the land use problems? 
Well, I mean, like zoning, no one would design our education system the way we have it from scratch. So I don't have a I don't have a particular solution. I think that there are all I mean, for there's so many it's we have such a jerry rigged education system and land and schools in the hands of local governments, which is pluses and minuses. Um, I don't I, I think more choice, um, more charter schools, more. Uh, varieties of private school choice combined with public school choice across district boundaries. Um, all of these things are, are important so that people who wish to be mobile with their children, um, their children's education have more options. I think that is important. If you could live in downtown Chicago and send your kid to the Winnetka public schools, you might be more likely to live in downtown Chicago, leaving aside the transportation problems. But I don't, I don't have an elevator pitch for how to fix public education or education in the United States. I'm a both and kind of person. Um, lots of good ideas, lots of good reforms. We don't know exactly what works, so we should try a lot of things. Great. Thank you so much. Um, Professor Sarkin? Uh, terrific. So I warned you in the beginning, I'm a contrarian. So let me say three things that I expect will be provocative and uh, 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 especially in this in this setting, uh, but in response. So one, uh, you know, there's there's a real question about the extent to which zoning should be responsive to or cater to the preferences of Americans as opposed to sort of elite policymakers designing urban policy. I think that's an important question, something to discuss. But I do think it's important to point out that catering to preferences is fine up until they start to impose costs on everyone else. Uh, and at a certain point, uh, that's where regulation needs to come in. Um, and uh, unlike Mr. O'Toole, the, the data that I have been looking fairly closely at does show that the carbon emissions associated with suburban sprawl are just much, much higher than carbon emissions, per capita carbon emissions with dense urban form. Uh, and so that is a reason, right? And even if it is true that Americans uh, might prefer to live in large lot single family homes out in the suburbs, to actually not uh, cater to that preference because the cost that it imposes on on others, and, I, and I'm someone who's very motivated by concerns about um, climate in that regard. Um, two, I actually think, so again, one of my big concerns, and this is in response to, to Mr. Rothstein, I, you know, um, my point here, one of my points is that we have to recognize that housing consumers have a ready alternative to single family zoning. And that is homeowners associations. And I think that homeowners associations are worse uh, in most ways. I think they uh, reinforce segregation more than zoning. I think they restrict supply more than zoning. They impose a lot more restrictions than zoning does. And if the consequence of zoning reform is to drive people to HOAs, I think that's a real problem. I actually think that California has done something quite innovative, although very controversial, uh, in that it has, it is now allowing accessory dwelling units in homeowners associations, even where the covenants, the, the master deeds prohibit it. 
to me, that is a way of actually addressing the concerns about competition between HOAs and zoning. But boy, is that controversial. And I expect that there's going to be litigation around that. And third, and, and this is in response uh, now to Professor Garnett, um, I also think the Ganong and Shoag article is just terrific and important. Uh, but I think there's another uh, uh, dimension here about why inequality and regional uh, inequality has been increasing uh, since the 1980s. So economic theory, as you noted, predicts that regions over time will have economic convergence as mobile capital moves to cheaper places, jobs follow the mobile capital, um, and what we will have is general um, convergence. And we saw that for the first 80 years of the 20th century, uh, exactly as economic models would predict. Ganong and Shoag blame zoning for the uh, increasing divergence uh, um, that starts in the 1980s. But I think there's another dynamic, uh, an additional dimension. This isn't a substitute, but an additional cause that hasn't gotten the attention it should. And that is a set of deregulatory national policies in the 1980s that created a kind of winner-take-all economy. So as we deregulated our transportation infrastructure, as we um, stopped enforcing antitrust laws, as we changed how trade policy was negotiated, the effect was to make it much, much harder for a lot of smaller cities to compete with New York and San Francisco and Los Angeles and Chicago. And so what we see is a winner-take-all economy that is the result of deregulation. You can't run an international corporation from a place where there are no direct flights to anywhere. And I think that that resulted in such intense demand, housing demand for those places that housing markets couldn't satisfy. So another kind of response here is to make sure that we're making the kinds of investments in the rest of the country that actually would make it less imperative for people to move to New York to climb up the economic ladder. Thank you, Professor Sarkin. Uh, and Mr. O'Toole? Thank you. Uh, you know, I've heard several people say things that make me feel like there's a misconception that the United States has uh, a short supply of land and this makes uh, large lots expensive and creates a barrier to housing for people uh, when zoning requires large lots. In fact, we have an abundance of land in this country. It's our most abundant resource. Uh, all the urban areas in the country occupy 3% of the land. Uh, and in the absence of growth management regulations, land is the least cost of housing. It's the least important cost. So the size of the lots doesn't really make much of a difference to the cost of housing and uh requiring people to have smaller lots or townhomes or zoning for that doesn't really make housing more affordable. It does create more density, which, which 
benefits those people who think that other people should have to live in density. Just as the Onion once reported that 98% of American commuters think other people should ride transit so they can get to work on uncongested roads. There's a lot of people who think other people should live in density so they can live in their low density suburban paradise and not uh, be bothered by uh, sprawl outside beyond where they live. There is some NIMBY stuff going on here, but if we don't have rural regulations on, uh, on development, then low density development will take place and housing will remain affordable just as it has remained affordable in Atlanta, in Dallas, in Houston. And Houston and Dallas are an interesting comparison because Houston has no zoning, Dallas does, and yet housing prices there in those two cities are pretty much tied. You know, at, at some points, Houston gets a little more expensive, at other points, Dallas gets a little more expensive, but basically housing prices are the same. So it's not zoning that's the problem. I What is notable is that if you talk to people about zoning and say, we want to relax your zoning to allow for more, more dense development or townhouses or whatever, they will get upset and say, say, you're taking away our property rights. They regard zoning as a property right. And I think historically they're correct. Uh, Bill Fischel pointed out that suburbanization began in 1890. I would argue it actually began in 1835. And as new transportation technologies developed, new waves of people ended up taking advantage of the ability to live in suburban areas. So that really is the American dream. Um, home ownership rates in 1890 in urban areas were about 17%. And zoning was developed as a way to give people security so that they would, if they bought a home, they wouldn't feel like they'd be losing home value, their home value, their investment, if somebody next door decided to put in a gravel pit or a grocery store or a doctor's office or whatever. And so uh, when zoning was developed, that led to a rapid increase in home ownership because people saw it as protecting their property rights to their, uh, their right basically to live in a low density neighborhood. Now, as for carbon emissions, it's a lot easier to encourage people to build zero energy single family homes than it is to encourage people to live in multifamily housing. They don't want multifamily housing, but the cost of making a home a zero energy home, if you're building it new, adds maybe 10% to the price of the home. That's not a very big cost compared to the cost of high density housing, which can add two or three times to the cost of a home. Housing issues have, uh, because of the increase in home ownership rates between 1890 and 1960, because the working class were buying lots of homes in single family neighborhoods, income and wealth inequality declined to its lowest level in American history in the 1960s. Then cities and states began adopting growth management policies that made housing expensive. That in turn made inequality greater. An economist from MIT named Matthew Ronley has proven that housing disparities are the main cause of the growth in wealth inequality since 1970. So what we need to do is get rid of those urban growth rules, allow people to build large housing developments in, in suburban areas. And if you look at Texas where there is no zoning in the counties, <laughs> 
the developments people build and the developments people buy are basically large lot subdivisions because that's what people want. Uh, and they're very affordable compared to anywhere that has growth management. Uh, I think that's what we need to do. Great. Thanks, everyone, for the responses. Let's go through some of the questions. We have uh, several questions in the queue. Um, Tanya writes, I live in a suburban city north of the DFW Metroplex that is growing rapidly each year. In my city, our planning and zoning committee is seen as an esteem group that has major influence in the decisions made by our city council and planning department. In your opinion, what are three major points that planning and zoning committees in fast-growing suburbs should focus on? So three major points that planning and zoning committees in fast-growing suburbs should focus on. Well, I would argue that it depends on where the fast-growing suburb is. If you're in the DFW area, that's quite different than if you're uh, in, say, Washington, the Washington, D.C. area or in California or someplace like that, because uh, you've got quite a different environment. In the DFW area, counties in Texas aren't allowed to zone. So any unincorporated areas, developers can build whatever they want. So the first point that uh, a city has to take into consideration is if they have vacant land, if they regulate it too much, developers aren't going to want to build there. They'll just go across the city boundary and build whatever they want. So they have to care about that. If you're in California, then you have to think about tax structure. Uh, under current tax structure, um, retail developments end up providing a lot more taxes to cities than housing developments. And so cities end up promoting retail and discouraging housing because they want those tax revenues. It's really hard to get them out of that mindset. So the answer to the question depends on where you are. So I would, I would just jump in and, and I would agree with Mr. O'Toole that um, it varies a lot by place uh, and not knowing suburban area described here by Tanya, it's very hard for me to answer with any sophistication about what the focus should be, uh, because I think it really varies. Uh, nevertheless, I think in general right now, I think focusing on supply, uh, becoming less afraid of uh, uh, growth in housing is really important in most places. We need more housing. Uh, and there is a kind of allergic reaction to growth in a lot of places that I think is uh, counterproductive uh, and really problematic. Um, but I think it also has to be really uh, focused on in tandem with um, planning for infrastructure uh, and supply uh, um, and being thoughtful about infrastructure demands and burdens and maybe promoting uh, transit-oriented development and things that will lessen the congestion on, on infrastructure. It will be an important piece of the puzzle. Right. Um, another question says, says some of the commentators seem to criticize local regulation in areas like zoning, school finance and control. Legally, this control has been devolved from states through home rule provisions. So presumably those state legislatures can take it back to address the consequent ills where they appear. But to what extent do principles of federalism augur in favor of some degree of local control as they do for some degree of state versus federal control? Or does a strong reading of the takings clause undermine zoning from the level of government in favor of the owner's right to do what they want with their land? Um, so in part, it's, it's a question of, can, should states be taking back zoning authority to remedy some of these problems? And or do we have a situation where the Constitution through the takings clause or the 14th Amendment would limit 
what zoning can, uh, how much regulation on property zoning can um, be used for. I'll, I'll jump in if I can. Uh, one to note that Bill Fischel is in the audience here. He's been, his name has been invoked a couple of times and he's one of the leading experts in, in this area and these interactions. Um, I do not think that uh, the takings clause does in fact um, provide really meaningful constraints on most zoning ordinances, and nor do I think it should. I think it is a mistake to constitutionalize um, a lot of this. As for whether states should, in fact, preempt local authority or take power back from local authority, this is one of the big fights right now. There are a lot of arguments for states preempting local zoning. Um, among the most thoughtful responses uh, to this argument comes from uh, Rich Schrager at the University of Virginia. And he points out, I think, very thoughtfully that uh, while we certainly have to worry about the kind of political dynamics and nimbyism that we see at the local level, we shouldn't feel a whole lot better about the political dynamics at the state level. That is, we might say preemption is going to solve a lot of the zoning problems, um, but it might just replace some of the dysfunction we see in local land use authority with a different kind of dysfunction at the state level. Um, and so I, uh, I would tend to agree that there is value to local control in at least many places, uh, uh, depending on how it's exercised, right? That all of this needs to be a lot more granular than, than just states are good, local governments are good. Uh, uh, context really matters. Let me just say that every state that is pre has preempted local authority on zoning has made housing more expensive and not just a little more, a lot more. In some cases, five times more expensive than in places that haven't preempted local authority. So I would not be in favor of that. Mr. Austin, do you have any comments on that? No, I don't. No, I, I think that, you know, it's we don't, as I said at the very beginning, we don't have the political context to solve problems of many uh, that many of us are talking about uh, today. And um, if we had a different political context, all of this would look very, very different. What do you think are some of the solutions that we can do to, to solve this? I mean, what how can we change that political context to redress some of this? Well, I don't think there's a single solution. I think that, um, you know, my main concern, is, as you know, is the um, effects on racial inequality that uh, single family zoning has. I don't disagree that people like single family zoning, but that to me is not doesn't overcome the fact that what people like may be increasing our racial inequality and in an unconstitutional, unlawful way. So um, I think even if we abolished uh, single family zoning in suburban communities, even if we, um, as Minneapolis and some of these other places have done, uh, incentivize more housing construction, even of single, even of uh, townhouses and garden apartments, uh, housing has become unaffordable in the near term, even the medium term, to um, people who are unconstitutionally excluded in the past, they're going to need subsidies. And that's completely off the um, uh, present agenda uh, is racially uh, explicit tar subsidies to people who are unconstitutionally excluded from uh, many of these communities. So I don't see an immediate solution. I see I think that there are many, many things that uh, we need to do simultaneously, increasing supply, abolishing um, single family zoning. I don't think that the. Uh, 
you know, I think uh, Mr. O'Toole said that um, uh, housing is the greatest cause of wealth inequality. He's absolutely right. It's not the greatest cause of income inequality, which has grown even more than wealth inequality in the last 40 years. Uh, so all of these things need to be addressed simultaneously. And uh, focusing on any one, I think all the objections that all of you can make to focusing on one of them are absolutely right. If you don't do a lot of other things at the same time, they're not going to accomplish what we need to do. Thank you. Um, uh, Bill Fischel asks, suburbanization started around 1890 in the U.S., not just after World War II. This is standard urban economics textbook knowledge. Suburbanization is also widespread in the, wet, in the rest of the developed world. Given this, how can Richard claim that it was all due to deliberate government acts in the U.S.? This is not to deny racial animus by local governments, but could overclaiming the influence of race make it hard to remedy racial problems? Well, I didn't claim that the suburbanization started post-World War II. I said the suburbanization of working class families uh, was promoted primarily after World War II. Of course, we had suburbs, uh, but the people who were living in suburbs weren't factory workers, and we were primarily a manufacturing economy. Uh, they weren't the service industries that service those factories. Uh, factories needed to be located near deep water ports and railroad terminals. Uh, working class families, for the most part, didn't have automobiles. They needed to live relatively close, both whites and blacks, to the uh, factories where they were working. So I, uh, Bill is, is right, as he is about a lot of things, uh, that suburbanization started long before at the end of World War II. But the suburbanization of working class families and lower middle class families uh, intensified greatly after World War II, largely because of federal policy. Actually, suburbanization of working class families started uh, in the 1920s uh, when Henry Ford developed the moving assembly line for making Model T Fords. He not only made it possible for workers to afford to buy their cars, uh, which they couldn't afford before to, for working class people, uh, he promoted the movement of factories to the suburbs because uh, factories that were based on moving assembly lines required a lot of land. So the factories moved to the suburbs, working class people now had the transportation to be able to live wherever they wanted. And so large numbers of working class people were moving to the suburbs in the 1920s. Then we had the Depression, then we had World War II, and then we had people saying at the end of World War II, such as Henry J. Kaiser, that we needed to get on it, make it possible to rebuild housing rapidly, and that's what led to the FHA. And while the FHA's segregation rules were terrible and shouldn't have been done, uh, as uh, urban economist Edwin Mills noted in, 18, in 1999, um, they made more of a difference as far as who got to move to the suburbs and how many people moved to the suburbs and where they moved. So we would have had suburbs anyway without those rules. Uh, and, uh, and right now, I think blacks are moving to the suburbs in large numbers as well as other minorities. So to me, the problem of, of race is not the issue. The problem is affordability and the solutions to affordability that I hear all make housing less affordable. Thank you. Um, Wesley Paisley asks, how about local governments where most of the voters are apartment renters or, well, this was um, particularly towards Professor Garnett, but does anyone have any views about when local governments are mostly voters of apartment renters or the numbers are on par with homeowners, where there's more renters in the area than homeowners, how that affects local governments? So the conventional story, in fact, again, by Bill Fischel, who, who probably should have been on this uh, uh, panel, um, 
uh, is that there's a real difference between what he called home voter jurisdictions, which were governed primarily or dominated by homeowners uh, and other larger jurisdictions. I mean, in recent work, a more recent work, though, by Vicki Bean uh, and co-authors, they've shown that even in New York City, which is one of those markets where there are a lot of renters. The dynamics that we observe in local politics now are increasingly home voter style uh, dynamics. It was an article she wrote, they wrote, she wrote called City NIMBYs um, and uh, discovered that long term renters will behave much like homeowners for purposes of uh, zoning and, and NIMBYism is my recollection of, of her very sophisticated argument. Thank you for that. The next question was, uh, Jim Berlin asks, there's also the issue of neighbors being regulators through litigation, a problem especially prevalent in California through CEQA litigation. This makes it very difficult to build both greenfield development and development that increases density in already developed suburban, suburban areas. Is there a potential that reforming zoning will lead to substitution of zoning by litigation? Any thoughts? Well, only that, uh, yeah, I, I, I agree. And that's why I say we need to be focused on many, many aspects of this simultaneously. Uh, CEQA in California has um, in, empowered uh, uh, NIMBYs to, fi to figure out ways of stopping this construction of housing uh, in their communities. Uh, that CEQA law should be modified should be reformed so that it doesn't give that permission. Uh, you know, we got to um, chew gum and cross the street at the same time. No one solution is going to solve it. I want. I do want to, though, if I can, uh, Adam, respond to one thing that, that Mr. O'Toole said. It is not true that Henry Ford was building um, uh, uh, factories on the large suburban, on large rural lots because he needed single um, uh, story assembly lines. He was building multi-story multi factories uh, prior to uh, the uh, beginnings of the interstate highway system in the 1940s and 50s, uh, the highway system and an interstate in the 1940s and 50s. I can give you a couple of examples. Fort Lee, New Jersey, at the foot of the George Washington Bridge had a, a multi-story Ford plant uh, uh, until the 1950s when uh, the plant could move to a lot of rural land in, in Mawa. In Richmond, California, I've written about this one a lot. Richmond, California, was a multi-story Ford plant uh, that was closed in the 1950s when uh, suburban, white-only suburbs were open, uh, provided lots of land for, for these factories. So uh, I just wanted to respond to that one. And maybe it's a quibble, but I wanted to respond to that one point. Well, my point was that in 1920, most urban jobs were in factories, and most factories were located in downtowns. And they, they were vertical, like you say, they were multi-story. Yeah. Uh, but uh, with the development of moving assembly lines, not just Henry Ford, but all factories found it more expedient to use more land and they moved out of downtowns. You find very few factories in downtowns today because they require so much land. So factories moved to the suburbs and then people moved to the suburbs. They actually followed the jobs rather than uh, all moved to the suburbs and then had to commute downtown as, as you, some urban people, uh, urbanists fantasize. No, I don't disagree with what you just said. Our only disagreement is about the timing of moving to a single story, large uh, assembly line of, of plants. I don't think it happened in the 1920s, as, as you suggested. Well, Ford's Rouge River 
plant, which he built in the 1920s, was bigger than downtown Chicago, bigger than every downtown in the country except for downtown New York City. Uh, and maybe there were some multi-story parts of the, uh, of the factory, but it was a huge place. Uh, another last question. Um, is there an argument for legislation to limit zoning and NIMBY restrictions akin to the land use protections offered by RELUPA or RELUIPA, the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act? Is there a way we, is, is there an opportunity for legislation on that scale for curbing zoning and NIMBY restrictions? Well, uh, let me add, address that a little bit indirectly by addressing the previous question, which was, do NIMBY problems, are we going to have lawsuits, zoning by lawsuits, if we get rid of zoning? And the answer to that, it seems to me, is it depends on the state. In states like Oregon and California, where the states have preempted local zoning and have passed a bunch of rules that require citizen involvement, people here feel like they're entitled to have a say on what happens on everybody else's land in the state. I know of cases where somebody said, I drive by a property once in a while and I like to look at the birds. So therefore that gives me standing to have a say on what they do. And they successfully stopped a development on that property. You go to places like Indiana or Texas or Nevada where zoning either doesn't exist or is very weak and nobody has a, feels like they have a say on what happens in other people's property uh, unless they live in a zoned neighborhood where they want to protect their zoning. Uh, but they don't say, well, I care about what happens two neighborhoods over or I care about a skyscraper that somebody's going to build five miles away from me. This is what happens. People start stopping those kinds of things in California, Oregon, and Washington and states that have growth management laws. Uh, but they don't in states that don't. They don't feel like they have are entitled to say what happens on other people's property. So uh, in, in response to this, the more recent question, uh, I don't think we need to worry about that. I think we need to get away from the idea that we need to that we need to have a government oversee land use. Uh, which is what Britain started doing in 1947 under the Town and Country Planning Act. And all of our growth management since then has been an imitation of that. It's taken away the development rights from people, which has made housing expensive, has made commercial development expensive, has made retail development expensive. Uh, if we get away from that and get back to the idea that people have a right to use their land for whatever they want, and one property right might be that I'll agree to move into this neighborhood if, and I'll agree not to develop my property to high densities as long as my neighbors also agree to do that. That's a property right too. But if we can restrain ourselves to uh, saying, I have a right to, what, to say what somebody who lives five miles away from me does with their property, then I think we can keep housing a lot more affordable uh, and uh, boost development in this country. Thanks, everyone. I, I think we're at the end of our time. Uh, Guy, are you are you there? Um, so thanks, yeah. everyone. And I'll, I'll turn it over to Guy for uh, just to, to wrap us up. And thanks to our audience and everyone for being here and for the federal, to the Federalist Society for hosting this event and to our wonderful speakers. Thank you all. <clears throat> Thank you. Very yeah. much. Thank you all. On behalf of the Federalist Society, I want to thank our experts for the benefit of their valuable time and expertise today. And I want to thank our audience for joining and participating. We also welcome listener feedback by email at info at fed-soc.org. As always, keep an eye on our website and your emails for announcements about upcoming virtual events. 
Thank you all for joining us today. We are adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Telefor, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.